That song that we just sang, I want you to keep that in your mind. Because that's where we're going to end up at the end of this sermon. This is a foundational sermon for, or passage, sermon on a passage that is foundational for so many things. Because out of this ceremony that we see here, is going to eventually grow the Lord's Supper that we know and love. Now, this last week, um, one of the things we love about Facebook is we get to see what our grandchildren are doing through our daughter's eyes. And so our youngest one, her two oldest children, um, are homeschooled, and then on Thursday they go to a a co-op, But one of their reading projects had been to read through the book, The Secret Garden. And they finished, and so as a reward, they got to watch on YouTube the same movie that their mother and her, our daughters, all of our daughters got to watch from back in in the 80s. But she said that it was interesting to listen to the two children as they watched the movie. Because each one of them had, in the first 10 or 15 minutes, had 10 corrections. That's not the way it was. That's not supposed to be that way. Which is good because that means that they remembered the book. That they, the story stuck. Now, as they grow older, they're going to learn the disappointment that in most books, the movies are very different because a movie is a different way of telling a story. We think of the disappointment people had reluctantly as they would read the Harry Potter books and then they would go to the movie. And they go, wait a minute, they left out so much. The same thing with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And so that's why I think it's important when we think about the stories about God that we go back to the original text, we go back to what God gave us, realizing that when we read Genesis, it is Moses writing to get slaves ready to be a nation of tribes, a people of promise. He's giving them something written down that they can pass down. So that the story is always going to be accurate. People will be able to say, that's what God said. Not, oh, I think I remember what God said. But no, that's what God said. So when I look at this passage, and by Thursday it was like, okay, do I split it again? I said, no, I I need to keep it together because it is, for me, it is such a big passage because there are so many, many stories within this. There are so many powerful words and illustrations in what happened between Abram and God in establishing and getting us that point where the Lord seals his covenant with blood and what I call firelight. We'll get to that in a moment. So his adopted children can be sojourners as well as inheritors in this life. Let me say that sentence again. 
The Lord sealed his covenant with blood and the firelight. So his adopted children can be sojourners as well as inheritors in this life. Now, in understanding the text, what we need to remember is that God had used the word covenant and made a covenant in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah before the flood. And then after the flood in Genesis 6, or 8 rather, he made another covenant. Each time you see the covenant shift, the covenant focus shifting from promising to take the Immediate family of Noah through the flood. And then if you look at the covenant and the command and the promises in Genesis 8, what you see in my interpretation understanding is he has gone back and borrowed words from Genesis 1 about multiplying and spreading. See, that's one of the things we're going to see in this passage is that it, it refers to things that have happened in the past and it pushes things forward. I think one of the biggest tensions in this passage in daily life is for us, and we're going to look at this, is that the Lord's adopted heirs, as the Lord's adopted heirs, we are also sojourners in a cruel world. Think about what he says that's going to happen to Abram. They're going to inherit the land, and then you go, remember, I couldn't necessarily get all the right pronunciations, but you had this big spread of real estate from one river to another river, and his heirs, his children, will eventually get that. Of course, what we know in the New Testament, that is eventually it will become not just one chunk of real estate, what we think of as the Middle East, but it will be the whole new heavens and the new earth. And as a middle point to that, you have Christ sending out his disciples to all the nations. But as it says in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. That gives us a starting point, a reference from what God was dealing with with this family. But he says, I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one that was with you on your journey, on the journey of generations. But the heirs, the ones that I am going to give this property to, and remember, we think of ourselves as being adopted because we get the blessings of Abram because Abram had been adopted and become a child of the Father in heaven, the Creator. Because, see, it's not Abram that's giving the people the blessings, it's God Himself that we're not orphans, we're adopted. But yet, when you look at, at verse 13, you see the sorrows of the sojourner. I mean, imagine the conflict. I mean, I'm a grandfather. And statistically, anyway, I will probably see great-grandchildren. But if God said this to me, Fred, you know, you're going to die and go in peace to your grave with your 
fathers. But you know, your great-grandchildren, they're going to start generation after generation of slaves. They're not going to be in the promised land. They're going to be in a place that will enslave them. See, and he says, you know, 400 years. 400 years is a long way to wait for a promise, but it's a promise that God's word is making. It also reminds us that we live in a very cruel world. It's not just the environment as we watch the recovery of the tsunami in Asia, in in Indonesia, on these islands. We have islands around us and we know that going island hopping to island hopping to try to recover and help people is hard work. So we can imagine what it's like in some ways to have places where the water has swept over The tragic story of these children on a Bible retreat that their whole school seems to have collapsed and been covered with sand. The story in the papers today of parents going and tragically they can't even find it. But they will be sojourners. My wife says I have to warn you when I'm going to tell you an orphan story. Think about the Cinderella story. Here she is with a loving father because she's already lost her mother. Dad does what a lot of dads do is they goes gets remarried to somebody who brings their own daughters. Dad dies. Instead of being in one of those wonderful bedrooms On the second floor, she is exiled to a servant's room in the attic. Now, she knows that she is the daughter of the man that made it all possible. Now, we know the rest of the story in that the fairy godmother comes and changes her life. See, there are a lot of people that feel like orphans. They feel like they're left out, that they're lost. And what I want to show you in the rest of this passage is that that God is not like a fairy godmother, but God enters into our real history and changes things, seals his covenant. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a, a story here of God sealing his covenant so that even though that we can be sojourners in a cruel world, And you know that I, you know, someday I'm going to go down to the archives down by Loch Lomond and research my family more. But when all of a sudden you realize that your name means you're not from here, you're from a far land, and and maybe it started with an orphan, it kind of haunts you. Because I know that when I baptized 
my grandchildren, the tenth generation of McFarlands to leave Scotland, for ten generations in my line, no McFarland has had their children in the town that they were born. We are a nomadic, roaming family. I think it's interesting, though, that my three daughters have all put down very deep roots in their communities. We'll see how long that lasts. Whether their children will indeed go off to other places. Our relationship as the Lord's heirs is sealed with blood. You see, Abram asked for a sign in verse 8. How am I to know? I mean, here he is. Remember what we looked at last week? Fear not. I am your shield, your very great reward. At the end of that, down in verse 6, and Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we run two verses. I mean, think about that in the storytelling. And Abram's back to his old thing. How am I supposed to know that what you're saying is true, God? Do you ever have those moments? Do you ever read and say, God, is this really true? Is this really a promise that you're giving me? How's this going to happen? See, we live in a society where we so much want to control everything. And we're finding out how scary that can be. One of the stories, there's a lot of stories this weekend, but one of the stories I'm looking at and trying to say, you have got to be kidding, but yet it has enough credibility, is that Russian trolls disrupt the lives of Western teenagers. Can you imagine having your child... Somebody in Russia says, I'm going to pick on that kid. And your kid starts to get picked on. How do you protect? How do you bring God as their shield into their lives? So they listen to God and not the internet. How do we listen to God's word? Now, what, what happens here? When he raises this question, and, and, and notice the love of God. I mean, the compassion of God. Does he get upset? Does he say, what do you mean you don't believe me? No. He's going to give him a sign. A very dramatic sign. Look at verses 9 and 10. The heifer, the goat, the ram. The birds. I don't know how many of you have actually butchered animals. Cut them in half. I mean, you've got quite a bit of space between the heifer and the ram and everything that's there. Cutting them in half. Let alone what, I mean, you know, I couldn't go to online and say, okay, what was, what was um, a ram worth that day? What was a goat worth? What was a heifer worth? 
Notice how Abram was willing to obey God because he'd never been asked to do this before. Now, Abraham had built altars and and had fires and worshipped God through an altar. But from that kind of perspective, what's missing here? What's missing in this story? He doesn't say build an altar, put up a bunch of rocks, gather firewood. Right on the ground. Sounds like an ant's picnic. Do you guys have ants in Scotland that come to your food when you're outside? So these animals die. Remember the first time animals died in our sermon series? When God slew animals and gave coverings of skins to Adam and Eve so they could cover their shame. And so you have this scene. What else is in this slaying and happening? Notice how the darkness is described. He goes to sleep and it's darker than dark, darker than normal. Like there's no lights in the sky. This darkness overcomes him. Now, if we remember our story in our text, who created darkness? In that very first part of Genesis, Water, darkness, chaos. God created it. So we're having this, what I call a flashback. We're looking back. We're having something that God is taking from an old story and he's bringing it and he's making it happen in a different way. Because the Lord makes a covenant, makes us covenant heirs, declaring it by using the firelight of his presence. Remember how God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this darkness, with these animals laid out, this flaming fire pot, which is something that would have been common both in houses and in tent cultures of the day, where you can contain your fire so you can move it around, you can contain the light, because it's used for both heat and light. And if the fire pot passes through the animals. Now, one of the things that we know about that kind of a ceremony, and we're not going to get into all the archaeology and things like that, and is that the split animal sacrifice ceremonies were used when a king would conquer people. And it basically meant as the, as the person or the sovereign would walk through and basically say, may this be done to me if I break my word. The blood of those animals, the passing through, and in this case, the fire and the light, 
That's why I call it firelight, because we're going to get to that in a second. But that's how he made a covenant with Abram. This dramatic scene, the passing of this torch through it. Now, remember how when God created darkness, the first thing he said was, let there be light. And I think that part of what was happening there was God was entering as light into his creation because the solar system wasn't created till the fourth day. But think about what's going to grow out of this in terms of the worship of the slaves who become a nation. What would lead them out of Egypt? You have this big fire in the sky and the smoke in the day. This is that small thing that will become a great thing to lead them. What happens every day in both the tabernacle and the temple? Animals are slain. The candles are lit. Think about that. When it comes to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, what happens? He dies. He's raised up. And what does he send down to his church for them to know that they are his people? That the Holy Spirit is going to be there? All of a sudden, people have these flaming tongues of fire over them. You have that symbol that goes back to this. For God saying in a very powerful way, you are my children, you're not orphans. You will inherit the world, the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. You are my children. And so this simple ceremony of having this flaming fire come through and God makes a covenant. And so when we are given, as we sung in the hymn, the body and the blood, that division that we are one to do in remembrance of him, When we lift up the cup, it is the cup of the new covenant. It has its roots here of God saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promises. I don't keep my word. Our relationship with God is gracious in that he is the one who made the covenant, who reached out. Even though Abraham just didn't get it sometimes, God said, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. And he has shown us what he's going to do is Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. That indeed we are the heirs of the covenant, that God's promises are true. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given Christ who is the light of the world. I want to end with kind of a review. You know, there's no test next week, don't worry. Because sometimes when you hear teachers say, I want to review something, you think, oh my goodness, that's for a test. Not a test. Celeste made me realize, I was thinking, I'm coming up on six months. She said, no, it's seven months. About our journey together. And it is a journey, and it does, I hope, make sense. 
Remember how I began with a sermon series from the IMs from John about who Jesus Christ is? Because I wanted us in some way to fall in love with him again. And then we had a series of passages and sermons on worship that focused on entering into worship into the very presence of God. And then in August we switched and we looked at some benedictions, those proclamations of a covenant blessing in a gospel context, that we are a blessed people. And now as we have come into the covenant series, what was that first covenant? I will bless you. And so as we think about our journey together through Scripture and knowing God and worshiping God, that it's tied together. And that indeed we are, is kind of the title that we have given this, and I say we because Celeste and I go back and forth on some of these big things, but it's living in the midst of the grand story, the covenant. Covenant theology has been important for Scottish Presbyterians, for Presbyterians, for people of the Bible since the Middle Ages. It is that story that binds together what God did in his promises through his word and through the self-sacrifice of his son. That is the foundation that we rest on, that we work from, that we build on. And sometimes we may not understand why God does what he does. I can't explain to you why God put those 400 years of servitude and suffering into their people. Just like I can't explain to you why that tsunami came. Why the, you can think of all the suffering and cruelty that the world has given to people. And we know there's going to be a better end, and I can go through it as an heir, even though the world may be cruel to me. Because I know I'm an heir. I'm better than Cinderella. My story's got a better, not a fairy godmother but a God who commits himself, commits himself by walking through the sacrifice, by going through it. What a story. Celeste chided me for making a joke about it. But I remember as a kid, sometimes I would look at passages And I would get stuck because, to me, it was like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, if I was a young boy today and I read about Abram cutting animals in half and then shooing away the birds, it'd be like, is that a boy story or what? And I know there are girls that are interested in that kind of things as well. But see, you've got to put the story together. Sometimes we get distracted by parts of the story and we don't keep reading. We don't get to the part where it says, and the Lord made a covenant. Now, 
because we live this side of the cross, because of that moment in history where we are, that's why I chose go tell it on the mountain is our final hymn. Because that's what we're supposed to do with God's covenant story is to go tell it, to proclaim it. That's why he wrote it down. So we could say, this is the story that's true of God's promises and his commitment. So we need to go tell it on the mountain. Now, the earliest we know about this in the United States was 1865. It was a Negro spiritual slaves. The mountains they would have been thought, thought about would have been some of the small mountains in Georgia, the Appalachian Mountains. But you get up on a mountain and you shout And I think of all the mountains we have around here that you could shout the good news on. Go tell it on the mountain. I even went through, I won't read it to you, and went through and changed it, you know, about being in the highlands and what our words would be to go tell it. So let's stand and we'll sing this song.